Father, we echo with the psalmist the praise that is due to your name. We're grateful that we know the true and the only, the sovereign God, the Almighty One who is maker of heaven and earth. And Father, to be secure by our faith in the hands of the One who loves us, who sent His Son to die for us, gives us great peace and joy. And yet, Father, we still remain here in a sin-cursed world, in bodies that are subject to the uh, assault of the evil one and to our own fleshly desires. And often, Father, we long for that day when you will come and uh, restore creation as it was in the beginning. And we look forward to that time when we will stand in your presence in the new bodies that you will give in the new heaven and the new earth. We're thankful for the word of God which we hold in our hands today. And as the psalmist said, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It is eternal. And we're so grateful that we can possess that little bit of eternity. And Lord, help us to hide it in our hearts day by day that we might not sin against you. Father, we ask for your special blessing now this morning. Guide our thoughts that you might be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I forgot to mention also, uh, any of you are interested, I have a few copies of, uh, if you don't get uh, Christianity Today, you, you might not have seen this article. It's by Philip Yancey, and almost anything Philip Yancey writes is ex excellent. It's called The Thunderbolt Temptation, and it's a very interesting little uh, statement as to why God doesn't always do what we think he ought to do, you know, like zap the evil people every time they stick up their head. And uh, it really gives us, an, this article gives you kind of a brief insight in what love really is, that is divine love. So if you're interested in a copy, you can pick one up after class. I'd like to begin this morning by reading the first 13 verses of the 41st chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. 
and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted, interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, and he hanged him. The major themes of the 41st chapter of the book of Genesis include the authority and sovereignty of God and the humility of his servant, in this case, Joseph. This chapter describes a power encounter between God Almighty and the God of this earth or of this world who is blinded, who had blinded the spiritual eyes of the ancient Egyptians. And, and we, that little handout sheet just gave you a little glimpse into the, the great pantheon of gods the Egyptians worshipped, and, and they worshipped them with their whole heart. Oh, certainly not all of them. There were as many hypocritical Egyptians uh, as there are hypocritical Americans or anything else. But uh, they, they believed in this, this, this array of gods and goddesses that they worshipped because behind them, of course, were the evil spirits, as Paul tells us and as Isaiah informs us. Later, 400 years later, in fact, there would be another, even greater power encounter between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And most of us are familiar with that from, oh, about the fifth chapter of Exodus through the 14th chapter of Exodus. We have the story of, of Moses and Aaron being God's servants, uh, serving him in this encounter between the God of uh, Moses and Aaron and the gods of Egypt which led to the almost uh, complete destruction of Egypt for a period of time. But, but this is sort of an early glimpse here, one in which no great destruction is resulting directly from this encounter. In fact, God is warning Pharaoh about trouble ahead. Now, last week we talked about this religious symbolism in the first eight verses of this chapter. And we talked about how the Nile itself represented the god Hapi, or Hapi represented the Nile. And, and, and the cows represented the god Isis, and, and some of the mythology related to that, and how this, this dream at first was so pleasant to Pharaoh. It was a, it was a religious encounter for him, until, of course, the gaunt and, and ugly cows, as it were, came onto the scene and, and brought a kind of a nightmarish quality to the whole thing. And the same was true of the, the ears of grain, uh, in the second dream that he had. In this chapter, God is asserting his authority over the, quote, son of Horus. Remember, the, the Pharaoh was considered to be the son of God, in this case, the God being Horus, uh, the, the falcon God who was the, the God of the sky, the all-seeing God of, of the ancient Egyptians, often confused with Ray, the sun God. So, so do you have this encounter here between the true God and this human who assumed his divinity. And God sovereignly elevates into power in Egypt someone who in Egyptian eyes was a nobody. He was a foreigner, he was young, and he was in prison. Who is he? And yet God will sovereignly elevate this person to power in Egypt and make him a somebody. And we note through this whole passage that God is at work bringing and instilling within Joseph, and we see this as we go back through the chapters we've already covered, humility, because that's what God wants in his people, is humility. 
that we stand in the presence of God or bow in the presence of God and acknowledge His sovereignty and serve His authority. This account illustrates the scriptural proclamation that we find given to us specifically in James and in Peter, which uh, quotes more or less from Psalms and Proverbs, that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. This is a theme that I think reverberates out of this 41st chapter. As God deals with Pharaoh rather soft-handedly at this point, and in Exodus, much more hard-handedly. But God brings this man of humble spirit to a position second only to Pharaoh because this is his plan and this is his will. Pharaoh, we discover, as you look through verses 9 through 13, which we read this morning, was uh, in a dilemma, trying to understand these dreams. Now, as we've already noted last week, Dreams were very important in the ancient world. They were usually considered to have meaning. Uh, most of us just throw our dreams out and don't consider them to mean much. But uh, to, to the ancient Egyptians, they meant a great deal. And of course, to Pharaoh, he felt that these dreams were saying something to him, but all of the uh, Egyptian myth magicians and soothsayers and what all weren't able to interpret the dream. But in the midst of all of this, the memory of the cupbearer is suddenly jogged. Uh-oh, bong, you know, the light goes on. Joseph, oh no, you know, pound, pound. How is it I could have forgotten this man for two years after what he'd done, had done for me, what, what I'd promised to him? Now, who is it that jogged the memory of the cupbearer? He could have continued to have forgotten Joseph just as easily. God jogged his memory. Why didn't God jog his memory before this moment? Because it wasn't God's plan for Joseph to be brought to the attention of Pharaoh until conditions were right. God has his moment to bring about his plan and his purpose. Sometimes we choose or attempt to rush ahead. Sometimes we lag behind. But God wants us to rest in faith that he is going to bring about his will in his time. And we are to be praying towards that end and to be in his hands. Remember, Joseph was faithfully going about the task that was his in the prison in spite of the fact years and months were passing without anything happening. Had God forgotten him, he didn't believe so. He was trusting in God even in prison. I, I think the cupbearer was a bit chagrined that he had forgotten Joseph. I think he was more chagrined and embarrassed, though, not so much for his promise for Joseph, but that he hadn't told Pharaoh about Joseph sooner. Being Pharaoh had gone through all this agony of not being able to figure out what these dreams meant for hours and hours when there was a man who could interpret the dreams. And that's why he asks Pharaoh's forgiveness for my offense. What's his offense? of not bringing to Pharaoh's attention immediately this individual who could resolve the problem. I think, though, it's very, very important to remember that the delay was God's plan. God was not bound up in the forgetful mind of a cupbearer. God was not hindered by circumstances of any sort. 
It was not God's will to bring Joseph to this moment until other things were ready in God's sovereign plan relative to the land of Egypt and ultimately, of course, to the family of Jacob. Notice how the cupbearer protects himself here. He clearly informs Pharaoh that this man is a Hebrew youth, not an Egyptian wise man, not an aged wise man in Egypt, but a Hebrew youth, meaning he's a foreigner. Now, we must be reminded maybe that the Egyptians were extremely xenophobic, that is, they hated foreigners. And so what trust did they have in, in, in a Hebrew an Asiatic of all people. And then he was a youth. I mean, you know, he was only about 30 years old. And in those days, to be 30 was, you know, like we consider maybe a teenager today. Uh, someone still wet behind the ears and, and not able to uh, have much wise advice to share. So he protected himself. So Pharaoh wouldn't be surprised. Oh, I've got this great person who's going to, to help you. And so Pharaoh envisages a, uh, an Egyptian of great antiquity who will come in and get, and, and in walks this, this ruddy little foreign youth, you know, or, or big, we don't know how big he was, but anyway, uh, so that Pharaoh wouldn't be taken back and in his surprise get angry at the cupbearer. Cupbearer is, is covering his bases here. But uh, Pharaoh is not interested in whether he's a foreigner. He's not interested in whether he's a youth. He just wants help. And so he immediately calls for Joseph to come before him. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. And lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen before in ugliness, the, literally meaning scrawniness, emaciated, uh, in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. <laughs> then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered, thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, that is the soothsaying priests, but there was no one who could explain it to me. The dilemma of the world. The world has no answer. The answers that the world seeks are but momentary. They are not transcendent. They are not eternal. Only from God comes truth. Can you imagine the excitement in prison? The word has come. 
that Pharaoh wants Joseph to come before him. And certainly the message did not explain the details as to why Pharaoh wanted Joseph. Just bring Joseph. Pharaoh didn't need to give an explanation with his orders. And so the word comes down to the prison. Joseph is wanted before Pharaoh. And so the warden hurries around. Oh no, we can't send Joseph up there looking like this. And so he brings Joseph a, a change of clothes that would be uh, presentable before not only the sovereign of the land, but the son of God. And so they brought a, a change of clothes. And, and Joseph was ordered to shave himself. And so he did. Beards were not in style in ancient Egypt. In fact, if you look through the art painting of the ancient Egyptians, you'll discover no natural beards show up on the faces of men in ancient Egyptian carvings and paintings. I think when Joseph served Potiphar, he was beardless, as were Potiphar and all the other servants who served him. But in prison, Joseph had allowed his beard to grow. Now, of course, Joseph might have been beardless at first because he was only 17 when he came into uh, Potiphar's service. But now that he's close to 30, uh, obviously his beard was capable of growing significantly, and he allowed it to grow. Why did he allow it to grow? Well, certainly it was easier to do, but I think more than that, I think he allowed his beard to grow as a, as, as a point of identity with his past. His father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and his brothers were all bearded men. And, and so he associates himself with his past by allowing this beard to grow. And it's some little point of connection with the past that is now so distant in his memory as he sits in prison. Now, it might have been perilous, but he could have said, if Pharaoh wants me, he'll take me the way I am, beard and all. It could have been, like I said, perilous to do that. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, Joseph could have thought, hey, I've got a lot of chips in my, on my side. It, you know, he probably wants me for, for, for a reason that I might serve him. But we discover that Joseph willingly shaves himself which illustrates, I think, that sometimes it's important to conform to the styles and practices of those to whom you wish to present God as long as that conformity involves no moral factors, obviously. Sometimes I think we're, attempted, we're, we're, we're tempted to distort Christian liberty, the concept of Christian liberty, to mean that others must accept our unconventional styles and practices just because we think they're important to us. But Paul has a lot of things to say about that concept. You know, we talk about rights in our society. We are a society who, who hammers home rights and everybody sues everybody because somehow somebody's right has been transgressed at some point. Well, we're really big on independence in our society. That, that we can stand on our own two feet and we're our own man's man or woman's woman and, and, and we, you know, don't you dare come into my circle or I'll sue you, you know, whatever it might be. As Christians, we need to be really, really careful about the concept of rights. I think Joseph is in some way here an illustration 
of the attitude that Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'd like to turn to that passage for a moment and look at it because I think it's really important for us to keep this in mind, especially in the society in which we live today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful. Now, now, obviously, we have to understand within the context, he is saying all things are lawful that are not immoral. He is not saying just because I'm a Christian, everything's okay now. <laughs> the Ten Commandments have not been set aside just because we're a Christian. You know, things which are, were immoral before are immoral at any point in time in the eyes of God. So he is, he's saying those things which have no moral character attached to them are lawful. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I do not mean your own conscience, but for the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. The ultimate purpose of our lives being allowed to live out here in this world is not only, of course, to bring glory to God by the praises that we lift to Him in walking in obedience, but in bringing life to others as they see Christ in us. Therefore, it's important that we be willing to set aside things that we consider are, are okay for us to do, but which might be offensive to someone who has a weaker conscience or someone who's not a believer and who will say, well, if that's what Christians do, then I don't need Christianity. And we could always say, well, that's their problem. It's not their problem, it's our problem. Because we are to be an example to unbelievers, and if it means setting aside something that, that we could normally do for the sake of others, then why shouldn't we set it aside? Is it so important to us? I don't think so. Because Paul emphasizes there in that... 24th verse, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Our number one purpose is to serve those around us. And of course, Jesus gave us the excellent example. As at the Last Supper, he washed the feet of the disciples, the Lord of the universe, washing the feet of these rascals. The servant's job the job of somebody who is the lowest in the household, the Lord of the universe was willing to do. And sometimes we, as, as 
God's children aren't willing to do some job we consider to be beneath our dignity. What? Me? Empty trash cans? You know, wash out the toilet? Oh, no. You know, I'm too good for that. Don't you know my abilities? <laughs> Joseph was willing to be shaved no matter what that beard may have meant to him in order to be God's man before Pharaoh. In the 14th verse of this passage in Genesis 41, we read that Joseph was brought out of the dungeon. The Hebrew word that is translated dungeon here is the same word we talked about when we talked about the 37th chapter of Genesis when Joseph was originally tied up by his brothers and cast into the pit, a cistern. The same word is used here. The word, it says that Joseph was brought up out of the pit. And yet in the 39th chapter, we read that he was placed in a jail, a roundhouse is the literal Hebrew word there. So we think, well, what are we talking about now? Was he in a jail, a round jail? Was he in a pit? Where was he? Well, I, I think that uh, there are several possible explanations for the different words used here. One is that Moses was simply speaking generically rather than specifically in referring to the place of the confinement. Just as we might say, so-and-so is in jail rather than saying so-and-so is in uh, San Quentin Prison or the California Youth Authority or at some minimum security place or, or whatever. We aren't, you know, we're just saying, you know, he's incarcerated. We're not making a big deal about where or what the actual specifics were. But I think more specifically here, Moses was speaking metaphorically here. He's not talking about Joseph's physical condition, but his spiritual or emotional condition. I think a close parallel to this is found in Psalm 40 where we read, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. The psalmist is not saying, I would stand over here in this, in this mud pit and God lifted me out of this mud pit. Or, or that he was literally in some pit of destruction, you know, with creatures coming out of the walls to eat him. What, it, it's a metaphorical statement that God lifted us out of this condition uh, of being hellbound and put our feet on the solid rock, as it were. And so Moses probably is saying that Joseph is taken out of this, this condition of the pit now to be brought before Pharaoh. And, and also it could be that the prison was, in effect, round. You know, that, that the building, or maybe it was a sunken uh, prison, was actually round, and so in some ways it was kind of a pit in that sense. Well, whatever the case, uh, Joseph is being brought out of his place of imprisonment under guard into the palace of the Pharaoh, the ruler of all Egypt, the most glorious building in the land. Now, he had long desired an audience with Pharaoh. He had wanted to present his case before Pharaoh, how he was wrongly imprisoned. But I think by now Joseph had largely lost all of that desire to, to make his case before Pharaoh, and I think he'd even forgotten, or, or lost hope at least, in the cupbearer ever remembering him. And so as he is brought before Pharaoh, I think he is not even really aware of why he is being brought before Pharaoh, but in his heart is that same trust 
that had kept him through the many years of imprisonment. Certainly being brought before the Pharaoh after living in prison all this time must have instilled a little bit of fear in his heart. I mean, any of us would have a pitter-patter, pitter-patter, you know, if we're being brought into the presence of the great authority of the land after having been in, in a humble position such as prison. There's, there's a natural fear or concern about sudden change in life environment. But I think more importantly, Joseph certainly felt the underlying peace of the presence of God. And that is so critical. In the 13th chapter of Mark, in verses 9 to 11, our Lord speaks about this point to us, to, to His disciples, and of course, through them to us. Mark 13, 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph didn't have that passage to turn to and, and draw strength from. But his experience brought him to the place of understanding that God was with him in prison and God would be with him as he stood before the mightiest prince in the world in that day, the one who perceived himself to be the very Son of God, the true and the living God, would be with him. And so with confidence, he goes before Pharaoh to serve God in whatever way God would have him serve him, just as he was serving God in the lowly prison. And he had seen what God had done for him here, there, as God had put him in charge of the whole prison, in effect, under the warden, even placing the cupbearer and the baker, who were two of the highest officials in the land, under his authority when they were in prison. It's interesting, as you read this passage, it seems that Pharaoh didn't waste any time in coming to his purpose for summoning Joseph. He was being called to interpret a dream that had stumped the most brilliant and most cunning men in the land. The experts, those with the PhDs and the XYZs, had been called in and none of them could figure out this conundrum of these dreams. And here was this lowly foreigner, young man out of prison being brought before this mighty prince to determine for that prince but the greatest and wisest in the land could not penetrate. <laughs> How would you like to be called before the greatest authority in the land to solve a problem that none of the experts could solve? Like the national debt. <laughs> well, we might say we could solve it if there'd be a little cooperation but Joseph was not intimidated 
If he was, he didn't let it be known. There was no knee knocking here. <laughs> Remember the old story of, of Belshazzar? As, as he was having his whining and dining and, and all the lords and ladies of the land were hooping it up there and they were drinking wine to the gods from the very vessels of the temple of the Lord and the big hand comes and carves words into the wall of the palace there and the scripture says very plainly that Belshazzar's knees knocked together. <laughs> Joseph's knees were firm because his faith was based on the rock. Notice in, in verse 16 his sterling response to Pharaoh. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. No hemming and hawing. No thinking about, boy, how much credit shall I take here? Will this put me in good stead with Pharaoh? Joseph takes no credit as the interpreter of the dreams. 1,300 years later, another young man would stand before another mighty prince in a very, very similar situation and respond in a very similar manner. I'd like to take a moment to look at that because of the parallelism Daniel chapter 2, verse 25. Then Arioch hurried, hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Here is a young man, here is a foreigner, and here is the mightiest prince of his day. A man whose word meant life or death. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen as interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it unto the king, exact situation as it existed in Egypt. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he would reveal mysteries. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, the mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. It may have been 1,300 years later, a different land, a different king, and a different servant, but the situation was so similar. And both of these men demonstrated the wisdom that came from years of walking with God, it is not in me any more than in any other man or woman. It is from God. Paul would later say the same thing in a broader way. Not that we are adequate in ourselves 
to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. I think that is a truth we dare not ever allow to escape. Our strength, our wisdom, our ability, our talent, whatever we may be able to do, anything that we're able to do with that for good has been empowered by God. And we cannot stand before God and say, I did it in my strength. Because the scripture tells us that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. Our sufficiency is in Christ. To God be the glory. Great things He has done through Joseph, through Daniel, through you and through me. God does great things. And if we have a talent, it's a God-given talent. If we're able to, to do something with our mind or with our hands or, or, or whatever it might be, it's because God enabled us to do it and we dare not take credit without giving credit to Him. And Joseph, of course, made that very, very clear. Joseph's statement to Pharaoh was significant in another way. Did you notice that as we read that passage? He said, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Whoa. <laughs> Is Joseph walking out on a plank there? Is he out on the end of a limb with somebody sawing rapidly on the other side? God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Well, what we need to do is look at what's really being said here. Joseph is saying, God will give Pharaoh shalom. That is the Hebrew word there. God will give Pharaoh shalom. God will give Pharaoh peace in this matter. God will resolve this conundrum, this enigma. God will make known to Pharaoh what is the meaning of the dreams. In that sense, he will be given shalom. And even in a broader sense, because Joseph will, Joseph didn't know that at this time, but Joseph will be God's man on the spot, serving Pharaoh, bringing out to fruition the reality of the dream, which will be shalom for Egypt, good for Egypt. Pharaoh then, of course, as we read, recounts the dreams to Joseph. The one difference between this and Daniel, of course, was that in Daniel's case, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember his dream. And Daniel had to be given the dream as well as the interpretation. In this case, he is told the dream. Let's turn to the 25th verse of Genesis 41. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. 
and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will bring it about quickly. There's no statement that indicates time lapse between verses 24 and 25. Pharaoh uh, recounted his dream to Joseph and there's no statement that Joseph said, whoa, that's quite a dream, Pharaoh. I need to go back to prison and think about this for a while or I need to go into the prayer closet and talk to God for a while. There, there's no indication of any time lapse here. Did he, of course, and I believe truly in, heart, in, in Joseph's heart, arrow prayers were going zing, 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 zing. <laughs> God, what does this mean? And I think he got instant response. I think God just opened his mind, gave him a word of knowledge, whatever you want to call it, to to understand what it was that Pharaoh had. It was really a simple dream or a pair of dreams. As we look back at it, we say, what a dummy, how could Pharaoh not figure that out? It's just so obvious, you know, seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, seven years, famine, you know, good. What's so hard about it? <laughs> when you have sin-blinded eyes, the simplest truth is absolutely a mystery. The cross of Christ, so simple to us, so yet so profound, is, to a is a stumbling block to those who can't see. It just is an impossible situation to them. It seems that God gave to Pharaoh interpretation, I, I mean, and to Joseph, interpretation right off the bat. And, and what he does is he informs Pharaoh two things right away. He says, the two dreams have identical meanings. One reinforces the other. Just as if you didn't get it the first time, Pharaoh, here it is the second time. Now, Joseph had had some experience, if you remember, with having two dreams with similar meanings. Back when he was 17, and he got himself in a peck of trouble. Remember? I, had, I saw all these sheaves, and these sheaves representing, of course, my brothers, and they were all bowing down to my sheaf of grain. And then there was the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, and they were all bowing down to me. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and, and even Jacob said, Joseph, what are you saying? So Joseph knew something about dreams uh, you know, that were doubled like this. And then secondly, he informed Pharaoh that God had revealed to Pharaoh what was going to happen in the near future. He was showing him the next 14 years of history in Egypt. Joseph then went on to explain, of course, that the seven fat cows and the seven plump ears represented a single seven-year period. And the same was true of the seven emaciated cows and the seven desiccated ears of grain. In faithfulness to his God, Joseph reemphasizes that it is Elohim who is revealing this to Pharaoh. He wanted Pharaoh to know that it wasn't Horus for whom he was named or from whom he was supposedly descended. It wasn't Isis, the, 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 uh, the goddess of, uh, of, of, 
abundance, uh, the mother of Horus, who would have been therefore Pharaoh's spiritual grandmother or whatever. Uh, it, it wasn't Ray, the god of the sun. It wasn't any of the other uh, mob of gods and goddesses in Egypt who was revealing to, jo uh, to, to Pharaoh this truth. It was the god of Israel who was revealing what he was about to do. The clear inference was that the Egyptian gods had nothing to do with these dreams. They were not the perpetrators of the dreams. They could not even bring the interpretation of the dreams because the soothsayers, the magicians, calling upon all these gods couldn't even begin to penetrate the meaning of the dreams. And on top of that, the Egyptian gods and goddesses could do nothing about them. Talk about powerless. Talk about a power encounter where the Egyptian gods all, all, their hands are tied and their feet are tied and their mouths are stopped. They stand helpless before the sovereign God of the universe. After all, with all their hocus pocus, what had the Egyptian priests been able to do? That's why Joseph was there. They could not interpret the dreams. What he is doing, inferring directly here, is that the God whom I worship and who, upon whom I call is the true and only supreme God. You may never have heard of him before here in Egypt, but he is the God of the universe. He's not some local deity. He's not the tribal God of, you know, if you've ever read some of the accounts of how supposedly the God of the Hebrews, who is our God now, uh, evolved, you know, the evolution of God. Uh, suppose he started out as some kind of a tribal mountain god, you know, El. And, and over time he, he, he uh, evolved into the whole God of the Christian world. You know, all kinds of stupidity is uh, shared and, and written about in books and sold as if this was some great insight. This God that Joseph worked, worshipped could carry out his will in Egypt as if the Egyptian gods did not even exist. That, was, that had to be mind-boggling to Pharaoh because Pharaoh was himself divine in the eyes of, of the Egyptians. Joseph gave meaning to the details. He explained, of course, that seven bumper crop years were going to be followed by seven years of ravaging drought which would produce a great famine. And if you look into the meaning of the words here, you discover that what, what, it's, what uh, Joseph is saying here is there, there's great extremity here in this. He is saying that the seven years are going to be years of surfeit. I, I, I mean, years with just abundance gurgling all over the land. <coughs> Alistair Cook uh, wrote a, a, a book having to do with the kind of a popular history of America. And one of the things he talks about 20th century America, he says, with food gurgling from one end of the land to the other, you know. <laughs> and that's America. And, and, you know, that's kind of the picture here. I mean, it's just going to be everywhere. There's just going to be so much you couldn't eat it all if you had a banquet every day for the next seven years. And then there's going to be a drought like the likes of which had never been seen in Egypt before. It will be a great drought. In fact, it, he goes on to say in, in there, it will be very severe, and the word there is heavy. 
it'll be oppressive. So much so that the years of plenty will be completely forgotten. Nobody will even remember how well they ate before because the drought will be so severe in the land. The fact that the dream was repeated, although slightly different form, Joseph was, went on to say meant that this dream is not tentative. It cannot be averted. And it will begin to be fulfilled immediately. <laughs> it's very interesting as we come to the end of what we're going to talk about today to note that whenever God is dealing with Joseph, in this passage, God is called Yahweh, the God of the Abrahamic covenant. But whenever Joseph speaks of Yahweh to Pharaoh, he calls him Elohim, the Almighty Creator, Sovereign of the universe. You see, Yahweh could be taken by Pharaoh to be a kind of a tribal local deity, even though when you really look into the, uh, the, the uh, de development of that word, we know that it doesn't. You know, it basically comes from the concept that I am, you know, the, the great ever-present one who had no beginning and has no ending. But the, the Elohim concept apparently was easier for Pharaoh to grasp. Pharaoh was to know he was not dealing with a local deity from one of the gnomes of Egypt or from one of the tribes of Bedouins out in the desert. He is dealing with the almighty creator, sustainer of the universe. Joseph was a man of powerful witness before a man who would be the least you would assume to hear that witness unless God had put into him a fear that caused him to be open. Many of us know of people whom we think, oh, they'll never come to know the Lord. But we need to pray that God will do for them what he did for Pharaoh, that they will be prepared to hear the word of the Lord from the lips of God's faithful servant. Next week we'll look at the remainder of the chapter, and then we'll go on to see how God honors this man, Joseph, by putting him into the second position in all of the land.